I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. There is something thrilling about the sound of blades on ice, of a puck hitting the tape of the stick. There are few things more addictive than that feeling of springing over the boards and joining in a rush, or scoring a goal, or being part of the crowd when your home team puts away the OT winner. Hockey is a hell of a sport, and no country in the world has a deeper and more complex relationship with that sport than Canada. This country founded the modern game. It has had a thriving amateur and college environment since the late 19th century, and Canadians have made up the majority of players in the professional leagues that have emerged. But hockey is not just a sport, even though we may think of it today as just one sport in many. It has a history that is connected and rooted in this country's search for identity. Perhaps no subject matter is more complicated than Canada and Canadian identity. What does it mean to be Canadian? What does it mean to be a part of Canada? Long ago, sport was seen as one of the answers to these questions, and hockey in particular was seen as a uniquely Canadian sport. No other object best personifies this sport of hockey than the Stanley Cup. Its nickname is the Holy Grail. It has persisted as a symbol of the sport for almost as long as the sport has existed. Today we talk with historian Jordan Goldstein to dive deep into the sport of hockey, Canadian identity, and the continual quest for Canada's Holy Grail. This is Season 7, Episode 11, To the Winner Goes the Spoils, the Origins of Lord Stanley's Cup. Jordan Goldstein is an instructor in sport history, sport philosophy, and sport sociology at Wilfrid Laurier University. He studied 
with world-renowned Olympic historian Robert K. Barney investigating the connection between nationalism, national identity, and sport in the late 19th century and early 20th centuries. He is also the founder of FIA Academy, a school dedicated to spreading the positive value of sport in society through ancient stories and wisdom. He works with elite athletes, using sport history to inspire them to think of sports as more than just what happens in between the lines, and instead to understand how their athletic career impacts their personal development. So the book recommendation today is Jordan's book. His most recent publication, titled Canada's Holy Grail, Lord Stanley's Political Motivation to Donate the Stanley Cup. This was published in 2021 by the University of Toronto Press. I began our conversation by asking Jordan, who exactly is Lord Stanley? And so Lord Stanley, or Frederick Arthur Stanley, he's an intriguing uh, character at this time, the Governor General of Canada is not somebody who is appointed uh, by the Canadian Prime Minister like it is today. The Governor General is essentially appointed by the British Prime Minister and sent over from England. So he is an, uh, an English aristocrat that comes from one of the most historically stable aristocratic families uh, in England. Um, his grandfather was a titan in the sporting world, uh, organizing the most famous uh, horse races in England, uh, the Derby and the Oaks. His father, Edward Jeffrey Stanley, is a political titan in Great Britain. He's the first three-time prime minister. He's the founder of the modern conservative party. And he oversaw some tremendous uh, reforms in his days. He was, uh, as a parliamentarian, Edward Jeffrey Stanley was the one who sort of mediated uh, the demise of slavery in the colonies, uh, particularly the grievances between slave uh, holders uh, and the, the abolitionists in terms of a, a mediated settlement. He also was the prime minister who oversaw the Reform Act of 1867, which effectively doubled suffrage. And this is really in interesting uh, because he's a conservative, yet he's got this sort of liberal streak inside of him. And that's those two influences really give us a good sense of who Frederick Arthur Stanley is or Lord Stanley, the sixth governor general of Canada. He himself is a political man. He serves in the British House of Commons for over 20 years. He serves in cabinet as secretary uh, of war um, and also as secretary to the colonies. Uh, and actually he serves as secretary to the colonies right before he's sent over as as the governor general um so he's got that political element but he's also a sporting man he loves sport and interestingly he sort of gets that love out of his military career uh, mm. unlike his father and his brother he was educated at royal sandhurst so the military college he didn't go to uh cambridge or oxford uh, like like most other aristocrats um and so he's this bound by duty love of sport aristocrat and he's sent over uh, to Canada at a very precipitous time in Canadian history this is sort of two decades after confederation a time of national uncertainty and overall national pessimism uh, about the future of Canada uh, so he arrives at this very interesting moment uh, with the ability to impact the future of Canadian uh, identity, uh, because this is a really 
influx kind of a moment. Yeah, why specifically at this moment is identity in such flux? Identity is in flux because Canada is a country that is not based on the traditional notions of nationality that are um, that are mainstream at the time. The 19th century, in terms of governance and governing structures, is dominated by this brand new political unit, unit pardon me, uh, the nation state. Mm-hmm. This is the dissolvement of monarchies, right? And um, the creation of new social contracts uh, in, in sort of Western Europe. And out of this comes the theory of nationalism and sort of first promoted by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, but then formalized by Johann von Herder. Um, And this is the idea that the state rests upon the collective identity of the nation. And the nation is defined as people sharing the same culture, language, history, religion, traditions. In Canada, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to us. Uh, mm-hmm. But in Western Europe uh, in the 18th century, this makes a tremendous amount of sense given the hundreds of years of religious and, and national conflict, right, that have, that have torn up that continent. So that's the basic motive power of, of politics as we move into sort of the latter half of the 19th century. We get the big um, federated countries of Germany and Italy, these great national unification projects. Right. Um, And so the idea is, if you're going to have a country, it's got to rest upon a strong sense of nationality. And Canada, when it confederates into the Dominion of Canada, we don't have any of that. We're not, we don't share a history. I mean, we've got a conquered and conquering nation. We don't share the same language, French and English. We don't share the same religion, Protestant and Catholic. We don't have the same history. And then you throw in the indigenous into all of this, and it's just... We, we don't have any, we don't any of have any of those traditional markers. So there's pessimism because it doesn't appear that Canada has the correct ingredients to sustain itself as a national uh, project. This is why identity is so valuable. You know, Jean-Jacques Rousseau says basically if a, if a, if a state, if a state doesn't have a nation, they, they, they need to create one. Like the first order of business is to create a nation in order to wed people together and Canadian nationalists, intellectuals, and politicians, they're grappling with this idea. What is Canadian identity? What is Canadian nationalism? What can possibly bring everybody together under this national ideal? And they're just, there's not a lot there. Right. Now, there is one avenue, and it is to create a community of common sentiment and interest that people might want to be in the same country together. You know, there are multiracial and multi-ethnic projects, state projects that have worked, you know, the Switzerland being the great, the great example, you know, that predates the nation states uh, of modern Europe. And so there was this idea that if you could get people to want to be in a country together, that could sustain the national ideal, but you need activities or culture in order to do this. And this is where the story uh, of sport uh, fits right into this, because in Canada, if you want to try to understand Canada, I mean, even today, but certainly in the 19th century, you have to understand its position relative to the United Kingdom, the British Empire, and to the United States, because we're smack dab in the middle of both of these influences 
Uh, and especially at a time when the United States is ascending in its power right. and the British Empire is declining. So we're caught in the middle of this. But both of these national titans of the 19th century have used sport as a means to identify their nationality, starting first with the British using cricket to define themselves in the 18th century, and then the Americans next modifying the English identification using the indigenous sport of baseball to define their character in opposition to uh, the British. So for English speaking countries, sport becomes this malleable activity that can be fit to local circumstances when it comes to values and attitudes that are necessary um, to live in those environments. And so in Canada, sport becomes this expression of national character mm. as it's being created in real time. Yeah, that's a fantastic answer. That 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 that's so interesting. What a dynamic time, and what a, what an incredible way that sport can be used to help forge or unify a nation that, like you said, doesn't really seem like it might work from the from the outset. So maybe you could we could go a little deeper into sport. What is the what is the state of Canadian hockey when when Lord Stanley arrives as Governor General? It's in its infancy. The, the sport of hockey is codified, like the first rules are written down in 1875 in Montreal by James Creighton. He's a uh, Haligonian. He's from Halifax. He's uh, an engineer, so he's kind of working in and around the Lachine Canal. He's got some buddies at McGill. They, they, uh, they write up the rules of hockey, which is kind of like at this time a modified version of rugby on skates, um, like no, for, no forward passing, to give you an example. Sure. Um, so if you want to move forward, you got to stick handle um, as just one as one example of the kind of gameplay. Uh, so Lord Stanley, he is appointed governor general uh, and is sent over in 1888. He sees his first hockey game in 1889 at the Montreal Winter Carnival. And hockey is a very young sport, but this Montreal Winter Carnival is where it gets its kind of first legs. Um, this is like an international tourist attraction to bring Americans and Europeans to Canada during the winter as a means to sort of disabuse them of the of the stereotype that that the winter is something that Canadians like cower from or, it, it, you know, we can't do anything right. rather we show them, hey, the Canadian attitude is we love winter, we embrace it, and we love it so much that we have all of these winter activities, including lots of different sports like snowshoeing, tobogganing, skating. And so hockey makes its debut at these winter carnivals. This is sort of the first formalized, organized competition before there are formal associations uh, or trophies or, or leagues or teams. And so Lord Stanley and his family see this uh, match at the Montreal Winter Carnival, and they are infatuated with the game. They love mm. it. They think it is incredible. And Lord Stanley himself is a sportsman. Uh, he spends a lot of his time hunting and fishing, and this sort of naturally endears him to the Canadian experience and allows him to uh, empathize and understand uh, the, the, his Canadian subjects. Uh, but hockey is something they don't have in Great Britain. And right. it's just it, it, it's 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 just he falls in the he, him and his family fall in love with the game. They start playing it at Rideau Hall. Um, all of his sons play. They, they organize some of the very first uh, teams 
uh, in Canadian history. In, wow. um, the Rideau Rebels, sort of like um, them and parliamentarians going around and challenging uh, other other Canadian teams. Uh, his daughter was also a keen player. Uh, wow. And her her there's actually a, a, a the first photograph of women's hockey is Isabel Stanley uh, and some of the wives of the parliamentarians playing on the Rideau rink. Um, and so it's a family affair. They just they love they love the game. They just. It, wow, it, that's, it, 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 it must have spoke to them in a way, in a, in a very deep way. Yeah. And, and, you know, I wonder if his time at Sanders, his time in the military, you know, there was like clearly a rugged uh, physical nature to the game as it, as it still is. But back then it was, I'm sure, even more deregulated in terms of what you could do to someone on the ice. And I'm sure there was a, um, a combative, maybe a martial aspect to the sport that I, I'm sure resonated with him and, and, and others. Um, OK, so he arrives in Canada where it's a nation that is struggling. Who are we? What does it mean to be Canadian? We're working through issues of identity. He sees this incredible sport, this new sport that is never seen before in Great Britain. And, 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 and he sort of falls in love with the game. How does that take us from that to the Stanley Cup? Where, where, where's the origin story of the cup itself? Okay, so this is an intriguing tale, and I'll try and spin it pretty nicely. Um, so he sees his first match in 1889, and he donates the cup in 1892, so three years later. So what happens in these three years? The argument that I put forward in the book is that he understands, as his official role of governor general, that he can't actually fulfill his role. So two of the roles, uh, the one, one big role of the governor general at this time is to um, to foster Canadian unity. OK, mm. now there are two things. I mean, there's a bunch of things that occur, but there's two big episodes that will convince Stanley that this is an almost impossible task to do politically. Right. As I mentioned before, Canada doesn't have that political um background in terms of a strong nationality so the one thing domestically which kind of helps to educate him is the jesuits estates affair um right that's the uh recompensating the catholic church for lands that were confiscated from the catholic church by the british during the french and indian wars or the seven years war okay in 18th century so it's kind of like going back 100 plus years and and giving back money. So this was something that was signed in Quebec. Uh, and English Canada wanted this thing disallowed. They wanted the governor general to to say, no, 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 you cannot, you cannot do this. Um, now, personally, Lord Stanley is on the side of the people, like all of his political allies are on the side of you got to disallow this act. You cannot mm -hmm. allow this to be assented. What you're doing is you're basically um, overriding Canadian sovereignty and, and allowing the Pope to to make the political decisions in this country. Mm -hmm. um, he does not disallow the act. This enrages Protestant Canada, especially kind of like the Orange Order folks, and is one of yeah. the precipitating um, uh, causes of the Manitoba school crisis, which happens in, in 1890. So here he sees, oh my gosh, like I just fulfilled my duty and I created a massive rift in the country between English and French. Mm. So I don't have the power in my office uh, to do this domestically. Internationally, 
He has served, as I mentioned before, as Secretary of State for the Colonies uh, from the British. So he's been on the other side of international negotiations. And one that sort of sticks through that experience and his experience as Governor General is the Newfoundland fisheries uh, issue. Uh, he also has to deal with the Bering Seal Sea sealing issue uh, mm -hmm. where American cruisers are capturing uh, Canadian ships and impressing them uh, for uh, fishing or sealing in American uh, waters and right. similar things with the rights to fish off the coast of Newfoundland. Um, do Canadians have rights? Does the British Empire have rights? Do Americans have rights? And he, both with his experience uh, in the, U the, the UK government and acting on behalf of Canadians as the governor general, he begins to understand that there's no avenue for Canadian expression in the international sphere. Hmm. Great, Great Britain calls the shots. And what generally happens is Great Britain sacrifices the Canadian interests in order to play nice with the Americans. And this is something that happens over and over and over again. And this, again, you might think that, well, why would he care? He's British, right? But I, in his archives, there are tremendous letters and correspondence that he understands what this is doing to the imperial connection between Canadians and Great Britain. He says, listen, if we keep sacrificing their rights, they're going to leave us and they're going to walk right into the arms of the Americans. And, I'd, and basically, I don't blame them. Mm. And he also starts to use this intriguing language where he starts to identify with Canadian subjects. We are, you know, he, he uses these let these words when he's talking to the colonial secretary or to the um, the ambassador, or the high commissioner, or even the the prime minister of the of the United Kingdom. We we are not impressed. You need to listen to us. So he starts. This is kind of in and around 1891, 1890 or so. So he's starting to kind of get this sense of what it's like to be Canadian and what it's like to live here. He's also the first governor general to traverse the entire country from coast to coast because wow. the, C the CPR is completed right in December of 1885. His predecessor, uh, the fifth governor general, uh, Lord Lansdowne, um, oh, it's either Lansdowne or the Marquis of Lorne. I always get the two mixed up, the fourth and the fifth. Uh, either way, they didn't go across. They didn't go across the entire country. So he's the first governor general to show up in where you are in British Columbia. I mean, yeah, right. in, in Vancouver, there's this yep. park. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called Stanley Park. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. It was named after <laughs> Lord Stanley to commemorate his visit in 1889. So he gets this sense, right, that Canada is this monster. It's so big and everybody lives so far apart from each other. He can't affect domestic unity uh, um, through, he can't affect unity through domestic politics. He can't affect unity through international politics. Yet that's one of his roles. Mm -hmm. And as an aristocrat, he's not somebody who's out there talking about my personal political opinions. Here's my personal political beliefs. I believe this. I believe that. He's kind of like duty bound. No, I'm an aristocrat. I serve out of duty. That's mm. that's kind of my my role. So there's one other avenue. And I sort of mentioned sport, but officially, another element of the governor general's role is to promote Canadian excellence. Okay, I love sport. I love hockey. I'm aware of the identification that 
sports bring. I'm aware of the importance of sport. You know, you were talking about the rough nature of of hockey. Lord Stanley himself writes letters to the heads of the Canadian militia saying, "We got a masculinity crisis. We got soft. We got soft boys, and our militia can't do anything." It's like we don't need to be a, a, a martial country, but we would, we, we should be able to, to marshal some good soldiers. And from what I've seen, they're not, they're not a snuff. So there is wow. maybe a little bit of that, that there, I, I wasn't able to make an explicit connection. That's just something that popped into my mind as you were talking. Um, right. So then you start to put all these pieces together. And this is where we get this idea that, or where I got the idea that, you know, Part of the reason why he donated the cup was to fulfill his roles as governor general, to bring right. the country together, to celebrate Canadian excellence, and specifically with an idea of giving Canadians something that they could come together around. One of the important elements of the cup's donation is the fact that it's a challenge cup. It's not right. going to, there were a couple of big leagues at this time, like some amateur leagues, and he could have just easily said the champion of this league gets to be the champion of, of Canada, right? But he donates this national hockey trophy. It's called the Dominion Challenge Hockey Cup. And teams from all over the country have a right to challenge for it, to be hmm. proclaimed national champion and one of the stipulations that it didn't end up happening uh, because of the difficult logistics of traveling in Canada at this time but what he really wanted was for Stanley Cup series to be home and away so you would play one game at your home arena and then you would travel to play at a, at the opposing arena because right. his experiences of traveling across the country had sort of gotten him to understand uh, the country so he thought that if we could stimulate travel and we could stimulate travel around this Canadian indigenous activity that is hockey, well, then maybe that will bring people together. Yeah. And whether, whether or not that was his explicit aim, it worked. I, I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think it's too hyperbolic to say, you know, Canada is hockey or hockey is Canada. It's the thing we're known most for around mm -hmm. the world. It's the thing that we're, there's, there, there are not many things. In fact, I don't think there's anything other than hockey that Canadians have invented. Canadians are the best at in the world and that everybody else in the world knows we invented it and knows that we're the best at it. I think oh, hockey is the, I think hockey is like the only thing that we have. And so it, it worked. It, it, yeah, his it, project it, worked. It, it worked by 18, nine, 18, 1899, seven years after he donates the cup, the very first technical guide on hockey is written by a former um, hockey player. His name's Arthur Farrell. What did he call his book? Hockey, Canada's Royal Winter Game. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's so interesting. So I, there's a couple things that stick out to me. First of all, it is how it is interesting because nowadays I think we kind of I think we do laugh at the hyperbolic nature of hockey as Canada, Canada's hockey, because, of course, there's so many other things that define Canadians today. But it's very clear in your book that 
in the beginning of this country, hockey was one of the great unifiers. It was one of the few ways in which people could connect. And and what is really interesting about your book is that Lord Stanley comes across as a pretty prescient guy. Like he's fairly like progressive in his in his sort of ways in which he's looking at Canada and Canadians and he's saying, here's like you said, I can't do it internationally. I can't really do it domestically in terms of politics, but maybe through this sport. Um, I can do this. I can I can play a role in helping to define this young country. How? Mm. What is the reaction to the Stanley Cup in Canada? How do people embrace it or not embrace it? Or how how do hockey players kind of look at it? It's one of those really interesting things. Hockey is not something that is like socially approved or accepted. Like to give you an example, like churches, like they they say don't play hockey, right? Oh wow. Um, just it's just not the it's it's rough. It's it's uh, you know it's it's not something that is the, it's not the best sport that you could play. Let's put it that way. There's better things you could be doing uh, for your character and for the country. However, mm-hmm. Lord Stanley, uh, he carries a lot of weight in this country. Um, right. This is still a, I mean, you think about the 1891 election, you know, John, Sir John A. Macdonald, the old flag, the old leader, the old policy, right? This is a British country. So the governor general represents the queen of England. And when the governor general says, this is a good activity, I approve of this. It's like overnight Canadians just like accept this churches begin organizing leagues. Um, it's, it's like everybody starts organizing hockey, uh, hockey games and, and, and uh, the game spreads pretty rapidly in a Canadian context. The, the, the sort of historic center of hockey is Eastern Ontario, Western Quebec, uh, Montreal, Ottawa, Kingston. That's the traditional those are the traditional homes of hockey. Even a city like Toronto is a pretty, pretty much a latecomer. And that's, I mean, it's, it's related to climate. I mean, the colder areas have longer winters and better, better ice. So they just, they naturally gravitated um, to that. But by 1896, you know, Winnipeg is competing for the Stanley cup and they win. Um, You've got challenges coming in from the East coast and the West coast. And generally what happens is that on the West coast, they just start organizing leagues there for themselves. The right. travel is just crazy. Yeah. Um, like the, the most romantic culmination of this story is the 1905 uh, Dawson city challenge. So this is the, the, the Klondiker team from the Yukon who makes the 5,000 mile journey uh, to Ottawa to play the Rideau rebels. And they, they lose like 19 to two and they don't even stand a chance. They travel by, dog sled by bicycle in the winter they walk uh, they get on a, a a steamer to get down to vancouver to take the railroad all the way across it takes them a month to get there oh. but that's the that's the dream it's that this small outpost can challenge the big club right and that this is an expressive of of canadian unity um right around sort of you know, the cup loses that challenge aspect it sort of gets taken over by the professionals um but there are some really like this you know in 1907 the smallest team the smallest city to ever win the stanley cup wins uh, that's rat portage or what is today known as uh, kenora ontario wow they win they win the stanley cup so it's this it's this idea right that it's open to all canadians and it's for all canadians and it's basically approved by 
by the the royalty, by the by the vice regal, right? By by right. the queen's representative. It does, right. you know, the the book I mentioned by Arthur Farrow, Canada's Royal Winter Game. Like it's just like once it gets that automatic seal of approval, it Canadians just they easily embraced it. I mean, that's one of the things in our Canadian disposition is we're pretty good at following the rules uh, <laughs> in that sense. So, right. So when, I mean, that's one of the reasons why, why we're Canadian and not American, right. We wanted yeah. to stay part of the crown. We wanted, we right. didn't want to break, break those bonds or break those, those rules. Um, and so it's, it's, it sounds silly, but it's almost as simple as that. It's like, you get the steel, do you get the Royal seal of approval? Right. And it just, it just takes, it just takes off. Now there are other there are other reasons why hockey ascends to be kind of like the most popular sport that's associated with national identity it has to do with some of the internal organizing and, and regulations regarding amateurism and professionalism. Right. And those are sort of unrelated to, to, to Lord Stanley. Right. Um, but, but in terms of like acceptance and legitimacy, it's, it's like a night and day kind of a thing. Wow. Cool Canadian history. We'll be back right after this break. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's, that's incredible. I mean, it, it's almost as if Lord Frederick Stanley should be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. I, I think he is in the hockey. Is he? Thing, okay. I, didn't know. I think, I, didn't know. I think, I, I think he's, I think he's a builder. His sons might actually be as well. Like his okay. one son was the, was a founder of the Ontario hockey association, oh, okay. which is wow. the oldest, which is the, which is the oldest, um, which is the oldest hockey association in the world. Um, because that's, incre- that's incredible. He, they founded the Rito rebels team and they're like, we want some regular competition. We want some right. regular we want we want this to be more standardized. We want to have a league. We want to have a schedule. And so, his, two of his sons were were integral in in the first hockey organizations in this country as well. So it's it really was a fam a family affair when it came to to the Stanleys and hockey. That's so, so incredible. And I I you know it's funny. Obviously, you mentioned Stanley Park. So coming from Vancouver, you know we look at Stanley Park every day, and and ever everyone here know on the West Coast knows it. And I don't think anyone has. Most people probably have no idea of the connection it has to this Governor General, to this Cup and to this sport and to how important the sport was in Canada at this time and still is, frankly, uh, to many, many people. Um, it's so it's, a, it's just a fascinating story. I'm, and this is a bit this next question is a little bit outside of Stanley's life. But at what point does the cup become the professional championship trophy? Like where, where around when does that sort of from the amateur nature of the Rideau Rebels and the you know Rat Portage, what have you to to this professional trophy? Yeah, the Rat Portage. They were they were the thistles. I mean, okay, which is I mean, it's it's like it's just perfect. It's perfect. perfect. Like the Scot the Scottish national flower and just like thorns. Ever. Uh, it's 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 great. They couldn't have had a better name. Um, Nineteen oh nine is the year. That's um, when professionals essentially take over the cup. Hockey was a sport that was readily accepting of 
professionals, which is one of the reasons why it became more popular in Canada than a sport like lacrosse, which tried to maintain a rigid amateur status. And it's, if you try to, at that point, uh, enforce a rigid amateur status, you're basically spending most of your time kicking players out of the league for anything really the amateur the the rigid amateur doctrine was was quite harsh it's you couldn't be an amateur in any sport if you had played professionally or taken money or competed even for a prize in any other sport so it was very rigid um hockey kind of had to in canada had to except professionalism because the United States started poaching Canadian players. Uh, uh, there was the, an international hockey league that was run kind of around the great lakes area, uh, the upper peninsula of Michigan, some teams in Pennsylvania and some teams in, in Northern Ontario, like Sault Ste. Marie. Um, and they were openly p- playing players. So all the best Canadian players, they didn't, you know, they were tired of being shamateurs of being paid under the table, but then having to, basically lie. Uh, and so they accepted these high wages. Uh, and so in order to get the hockey players back, we accepted professionalism and the cup started going to the best teams, uh, in around 1909. And it was sort of a play down between, uh, different, uh, amateur leagues at one point, uh, sorry, uh, uh professional leagues at one point, it became a, a, the codified championship between sort of like the East coast league and the Pacific coast hockey league, okay. which has started uh, kind of around the 1910s. So you'd basically, it's, it's similar to the way, you know, major league baseball worked where you've got like the national league and the American league and the winners of both those leagues meet for the world series. Sure. That was the, op- the, the Stanley cup operated like that uh, for, for a while um, between sort of the NHA which was founded in 1909. That's the first professional hockey association in Canada. There is uh, one team that still survives from 1909, and that's the Montreal Canadiens. They were mm. uh, founded specifically to give the French Canadians of Montreal their very first hockey team because they had not, they didn't have a team. This was all organized by English-speaking Canadians, uh, and French Canadians just didn't have a say in organizing sport for for a number right. of reasons. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll touch on that in a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Um, so the NHA and the PCHL, the Pacific Coast Hockey League, they fight over the cup for a while. The NHL emerges out of the NHA in 1917. Basically, they just they wanted to kick out the guy who owned the Toronto team. So they just right. there were four teams and then they kicked him out and then there were three. Uh, uh, oh, no, they want to kick out the Quebec guy. My apologies. Uh, okay. So there were three and then they had to create a new team for four. And that's actually how the Toronto Maple Leafs were started. Um it's kind of interesting uh, in that sense. They battle over the cup for a while until the PCHL, they kind of fold and there's a new league in the mid twenties and then it's, it's over. And then by 1926, there's only one league left standing. That's the national hockey league. So they basically, yeah. um, they basically get to award the cup. And then in, in 1947, because the Stanley cup is a challenge cup and it's, essentially administered by two trustees. So Lord Stanley picked two trustees to sort of look at the challenges and decide who was worthy and who wasn't. In 1947, they sign over ownership of the rights to the cup to the NHL so that it becomes property of the NHL. But that there's, uh, there's, there's a, a lot to that story, to that 1947 story, uh, 47 story as well. So that's a little bit of how the cup right transferred from this 
symbol of Canadian national hockey supremacy to professional hockey supremacy as the trophy of the best professional hockey league in the world. Well, I think oh, that's that's a that's a great synopsis of how that works. And 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 what's interesting is your book opens up with this interesting court settlement in February of two thousand six, and 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 perhaps this is a good time to bring that in. Maybe you could tell the listeners about this this very interesting court settlement that that's rooted a lot in what you've just explained historically speaking as well. So tell us about the court settlement that occurred in February two thousand six. Absolutely. So if listeners will remember, 2004 and 2005 was the year of the NHL lockout, and it was the year of the full year lockout, right? So there was no NHL season and there was no Stanley Cup uh, championship. This was the first time the Stanley Cup had not been awarded since 1919 when it was canceled for the Spanish flu. Uh, It was supposed to be Montreal uh, Canadians versus the Seattle Metropolitans, but they didn't play. Uh, because because of the uh, the massive influenza outbreak after the First World War. And so this was a big deal. And there were two Canadian lawyers. Uh, I believe they're Edmonton. Uh, no, they're Toronto based. Um, and they sued the NHL. They figured, well, if you're not going to award it, this is actually our trophy. Uh, and so we, w- we would like it back. We would love to award it to maybe the CIS team, like the Canadian college champion. Maybe the Allen Cup would be replaced with the Stanley Cup. The Allen Cup is for the Canadian Senior Men's Amateur Hockey Championship. And it was sort of the substitute that was uh, proposed when the Stanley Cup was turned into a professional trophy because oh, wow. there were still okay. a lot of people who maintained that professionalism is debauched and it's kind of like prostitution essentially is, was their argument. So we need amateur sport. Um, so they sued the NHL and they argued that this 1947 arrangement with the trustees of the cup was, uh, was unjustified because the trustees don't own the cup. So legally speaking, they gave away something they had no legal ownership over. Oh, interesting. So the NHL, rather than take this thing all the way out to court, made an out-of-court settlement with these lawyers. Now, part of the out-of-court settlement was revealed, and it reveals that the NHL doesn't own the cup. They borrow it, and they own the trademark. They own the commercial trademark to the cup. But they don't own the cup itself, and it's borrowed from the trustees. So who owns the cup? Well, what's interesting about this settlement is it essentially goes all the way back to the 1892 letter that Lord Stanley had read at the end of year banquet for the Rito Rebels hockey team, where he donated this cup. And it basically states the cup belongs to us, to the people of Canada, as represented through their hockey teams. So it really is ours. We actually Mm -hmm. do legally own it, but we still allow the NHL to profit off of it and to use it as their trademark. Now, what did come out of that settlement is if the NHL declines to award the Stanley Cup in the future, we get it back. So in 2011, there was another lockout. And so people were thinking, hmm, maybe we're going to, maybe this will, maybe this is the the chance for a Canadian team to finally hoist the cup uh, after, you know, since it hasn't been done since 1993, even though the majority of hands that touch the Stanley Cup are still Canadians. Um, Canadians still make up the plurality of players in the league uh, and, and 
they they generally speaking will make up the plurality or the majority of the the winning team as well. So the cup comes comes back to Canada all the time, but mm-hmm. it's different because it's not one of our teams. And mm-hmm. so the the settlement is illuminating and sort of puts another interesting spin on this whole story of the cup and Canadian national identity because mm-hmm. It's not just the end. It's 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 it literally belongs to us. We are the yeah. legal owner. We are the legal owners of the cup. It's ours. And that's so that's a, something that's that's something that's just it's it's striking. It's striking yeah. to think about. It is. It, it, and, and, and everything that you're talking about, just it's these are great. This is such a great story. I just want to say this right away. Like, I just find this so fascinating and it's so interesting. You know, when I teach my history classes, I talk a lot about Canadian identity and how complicated Canadian identity is. And, and, and we spend time talking about hockey and sport in general. And, and it's just so fascinating hearing these stories. Um, I, I want to, so I, I, Lord Stanley is such a fascinating figure. He's so interesting. Perhaps you could tell us, tell the listeners, what happens to him? Like, when, when does he stop being governor general and sort of what happens for the rest of his life? I mean, just sort of to wrap up our story, what happens to Lord Stanley? Yeah, abs- absolutely. Uh, okay, so his life continues to be interesting. So he leaves uh, early. He leaves a little bit early from his post because his brother dies. Uh, and his brother is the 15th Earl of Derby. As I mentioned, Stanley's family lineage goes back quite a long ways. And they have a, a massive estate at Nosley, which is uh, just outside of the, of Liverpool. People are sort of familiar with the, the geography of England. So he goes back to assume the earlship or earldom. Well, I forget which one it is. I think it's earldom uh, of, of Derby. So he becomes the 16th Earl of Derby. He leaves in 1893 before the very first Stanley cup games and the very first Stanley cup is awarded. So he actually never watch is able to see a Stanley cup game and see his cup uh, awarded to, to a Canadian team. But when he becomes the 16th Earl of Derby, he becomes the 30th richest man in the world. (laughs) So he's, he's got lots of responsibilities and duties. And as an aristocrat, he basically just goes back and becomes a, a philanthropist and a, a patron, right? right? So he's just funding things. And, and this was one of the more interesting things of, of going to the Stanley archives and, and looking at sort of what he did afterwards. Um, he revived the, the stabling tradition. So as I mentioned, his grandfather founded the two most famous races, the Epsom races in, uh, in England. His father loved horse racing uh, and it was also oftentimes ridiculed. Uh, for spending a lot of time at the track as like a prime minister and a parliamentarian. Right. Um, but he didn't, uh, but his, his brother sort of um, got rid of the stables. And so one of the things he did was reestablish the stables and the thoroughbred breeding tradition. Um, and his, his horses won some of the famous races like the Oaks and the Derby. Um, so he got big into horse racing. He was a patron of a lot of local sports teams Um swimming clubs, football, football clubs, uh, field hockey. So, so, so there's lots of solicitations, uh, from, from clubs and there's lots of evidence that he's the patron of sporting clubs or, uh, academic societies. One of his big causes is actually, um, the society for the prevention of cruelty against animals. He is a big, he's big into that, um, as well. And, and he just basically lives out his, he dies in 1907. Um, and one of the interesting artifacts I found in his archives was a 1907 racing schedule. 
So he was preparing to go to all the races, you know, and so that, that, that's kind of his life, just yeah. living off the fortune, giving back to his community in, in philanthropic ways uh, and, and, and reviving the sort of the sporting tradition of his, his family. There, there's one interesting hockey story that I will leave you off with because yes, is, as I mentioned, his family, right? His family loves hockey. Now his family is also because they're, they, they occupy this prestigious aristocratic position. They are very close with the Royal family. So the Stanley family and, you know, Queen Victoria and the King, like they all know, they all know each other. And so the Stanleys uh, frequently uh, are at Buckingham Palace. And in one of the winters, I forget which month, but it's in 1895, it gets cold enough at Buckingham Palace for like the ornamental waters, you know, like those flat pools sure. uh, to freeze, freeze over. So Arthur Stanley, uh, yeah, it's, it's Arthur Stanley, I think he organizes a hockey match. And the Queen of England and the King of England play goal. <laughs> and members of the royal, ha- royal family just are playing along with the Stanleys. It's hilarious because you could probably guess the score of this hockey game. What do you think the score was? I have no idea. <laughs> it was 0-0, zero, zero, which was, as, as, and it was described in, um, this was Lord, Lord Stanley's uh, personal aide. Uh, Lord Kilcorsey. He's the guy who reads out Lord Stanley's uh, letter at the um, Russell Hotel in Ottawa when when he donates the Stanley Cup. So he's he's takes part in this game and it's in his diary that he's talking about. It. And he says the score was zero zero, which was proper and as it should be, which you're not going to yeah. score a goal on Queen Victoria. right? Like, <laughs> yeah. It's just not going to it's not going to happen. So oh, so that's kind fantastic. of a funny thing. Like the Stanley, the Stanley family love affair with hockey is continued in England, but it just can't find the, the natural, it's just not a natural sport to England because there's no ice there. Uh, So that's right. But that, but that, that sort of gives you a nice little wrap up of of the Stanley story when it comes to hockey uh, in Canada and that uh, Royal position that he occupies. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find me on Twitter at, at @docboris that's D O C B O R Y S and you can find this podcast on Facebook, Instagram and Patreon as well as on all podcast platforms. And feel free to leave us a comment and a rating. We love to hear from you. Stay cool friends. <laughs>